Johnny Cash once described country music as being made of emotions, of love, of breakup, of love and hate, and death and dying, mama, apple pie, and the whole thing. I'm Tennessean country music writer Cindy Watts. Welcome to Country Mile, the USA Today Network's new podcast series exploring the evolution of one of America's truest art forms through the stories of some of the genre's biggest names. giving all of our good stories away. Boys, y'all are drawing a crowd. They heard bigger, y'all went in town. Bigger than most of our shows are here. So are they, are they, you owe them a little money or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if they're in town, I'll go get it. <laughs> I was this reminds me of year five of our career. Yeah, exactly. Year 15. I won't drink it all in one place. There it is. Welcome to episode two of Country Mile, a podcast series from the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University. I'm Cindy Watts, and today we're in sacred space at the Quonset Hut Studio on Nashville's Music Row. This is the room where Patsy Cline recorded Crazy and Brenda Lee made I'm Sorry. Tammy Wynette, Johnny Cash, The Birds, Elvis Costello, Gene Vincent, and Simon and Garfunkel also recorded here. Today, however, it's our temporary home. We're here with Country Music Hall of Famer Ricky Skaggs and -and up-and-coming country duo High Valley, which is comprised of brothers Brad and Curtis Rimple. In this episode, we're talking about the rich crossroads of country and bluegrass. So, a proud Kentuckian spent your whole career kind of being beloved in country music and in bluegrass. And now we have High Valley, who are from complete other end of the continent. Yeah, I was more low valley. You were low value. Yeah. 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 And you all grew up in a community where acoustic instruments were pretty much all you had, right? Which, yeah, yeah. I mean, dad had a bass guitar. Mom had a really bad 12 string from Sears. And, um, and I, I'm the youngest of six kids. So the, by, by the time I came around, there was so much harmony flying around the house. We didn't really have a chance. That was just all we knew. Growing up, our friends knew about cooler music, and they had, you know, more technology. We had no radio and no TV, but uh, we did have a record player, and we had three records that were consistently um, there. There was Ricky Skaggs, there was the Everly Brothers, and there was Buck Owens, and those were pretty much, while other people were listening to the Backstreet Boys and in sync, I was listening to Ricky Skaggs, and <laughs> yeah, there you go. Could be a good, good collaboration at some yeah. point. So that's kind of what we're talking about today is where country and bluegrass meet kind of that rich crossroads and both of you seem like the authorities in that that is very unfair but i i do believe that ricky is definitely the authority and we're we're the apprentices honestly i think bluegrass music is is in my opinion if my opinion matters at all but i think it's the purest form of country music that's still alive I mean, I, I thank God every day that bluegrass music still has an audience and still has people that, and especially young people that that love it, like the boys here do. And uh, they were telling me that, you know, they their, their newest single, they just did a bluegrass version of it, you know, which is just awesome to me. I think that's so great. And I think this music has always captured the ear of music lovers, period. You don't have to be a country music lover to love the sounds of bluegrass. There's a, there's, there's a richness, there's a sparkle, there's a, I don't, there's a rhythm in bluegrass that people, they gravitate to, yeah. you know, and I, when I was, when I came here and was, you know, trying to, trying to get a, you know, record deal and that kind of thing. But what I found out was there was so, you know, Nashville has never really tipped its hat to bluegrass, you know, it's almost an embarrassment to to real country record labels. I mean, it's like because the sales are so minuscule and just so irrelevant, you know, in their way of thinking that it's just a blip on the screen, you know, but they're digging in the wrong place. It's like Indiana Jones when they found the ark. <laughs> you know, they're digging in the wrong place, you know. I, I do think, though, that I, I agree with you that it's not ever the focal point bluegrass in, in the country scene, but I think in the last few years, 
even going back a few years now when Dan Tominski did that song with Avicii, you know, all oh, of a yeah. sudden you have this huge EDM yeah. producer. Avicii, exclusive mix. We found it hilarious because people were discovering this voice and thinking how cool it was. And we'd known of Dan Tominski for such a long time yeah. and loved his records with Alison Krauss and even his solo records. And and I was a bluegrass DJ for six years. And my theme song was Dan Tominski singing Stuck in the Middle of Nowhere. And all of a sudden, here he is on an Avicii record. And the whole world is dancing to it, in my opinion, the same way they do when you play a, a bluegrass record. And that's why for us, even... As we tried to break into modern mainstream country music, you, you go play a live show and you're kind of getting the crowd and you're kind of doing it, but it's not 100% until we play I'll Fly Away and I Saw the Light in a stripped-down bluegrass format. And all of a sudden everybody's clapping their hands, stomping their feet, even dancing a little bit and usually singing along. And we've never... That ought to tell you something. Exactly. Yeah, we've never stopped. I mean, just last night we were... This morning, we were in Las Vegas. We just took a red eye to get here, and we played it in, in Las Vegas. We played I'll Fly Away, pretty much with mandolin and guitar. And If the crowd's ever looking like they might be falling asleep, you know, we'll, we'll take a peek through the curtains before we get up on stage, and we decide, you know, I'm pretty sure we're going to have to play I'll Fly Away here tonight to get, get things rolling, and it works every time. Yeah, it's never, it's never not worked. That's where even when we were coming out with Make You Mine, which yeah. uh, was a duet with this young man right here, you know, we, um, it was amazing how people would say, oh, so you guys are huge Mumford & Sons fans, and I couldn't name at the, at the time. Now I can because I got told that a million times, but at the moment I couldn't name a Mumford & Sons song, but I could name 40 Ricky Skaggs songs, and we're like, no, we're, we're bluegrass fans. That's where this stuff comes from. So, Ricky, do you remember the first time you heard bluegrass? When, when it registered for the first oh, time? Oh, man. Well, I grew up with it. I mean, uh, I was playing. My dad bought me my first mandolin when I was five and stuck it in my bed. And I woke up and grabbed it by the neck kind of like I am right now. And I've just been holding on. But uh, it was a little half pint size, a little old teeny mandolin. And, uh, but we'd heard, we'd heard Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers and Flatt and Scruggs. We, we'd heard them on the radio in in eastern Kentucky where I was living uh, all the time that, you know, I don't know what alien brainchild came up and, and said, oh, we need to separate uh, country from bluegrass on, on, mm -hmm. on country radio. Because back in the day, they were playing Patsy Cline. They were playing, you know, George Jones. They were playing all this great country stuff. And then here would come the Stanley Brothers. And Flatt and Scruggs or Bill Monroe. It was like there was just no division between it, and everybody liked it. And then all of a sudden, sometime it just parted the waves, and someone thought, oh, well, we just need to be a little bit more, uh, you know, something, whatever they thought that something was, and, and be country all the time and not realizing that bluegrass is country too. I mean, it's just a, it's just a real stanky old dirt mountain sound, you know, uh, in comparison to what the, you know, the more pedal steel guitar, I mean, which nowadays is, is yeah, just like gone, uh, gone by the wayside. But the sound of the steel guitar was, to me, the steel guitar is what the banjo is to bluegrass. I mean, it's that defining instrument. When you put a pedal steel guitar with something like that, it's just, it, it, it just evokes that that sound of country music where you can play mandolin and guitar, but man, when you put a banjo in on top of that, it's just like, here we are, that's it, you know? Yeah. And I think when they, when Mr. Monroe heard Earl Scruggs and he heard that three-fingered rhythm, that drive, and Earl was 20, 20 or 21 years old, you know, and just kind of developing a three-fingered style that he'd heard over in North Carolina, and he started just perfecting it, getting better and better and better all the time. Uh, I hear air tapes of WSM, the Grand Ole Opry, in 1940, late 45, 46, early 46, and I'm telling you, when they come on there, it's like the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean, people were screaming 
when he would take a banjo solo. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, and so him and Mr. Monroe was having this, you know, this little, not a war, but they were, they were jamming at each other, you know, and it just, I don't know, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't happen so much in country. And I, I think another thing that distinguishes country, with country music, it's all about the lead singer. You know what I'm saying? It's Ray Price. It's George Jones. It's Johnny Paycheck. It's Patsy Cline. You know, and then the band is kind of, you know, stuck in the back. Bluegrass, it's the whole package. It's the whole band, you know. And I work my boys hard. I work them like a rented mule, you know. I know I've got them for a certain amount of time, and I just work them hard. And they work me hard, too, and that's what makes such great music, you know. And uh, so it is a band. It's a band sound. It's Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. And, and boy, I, I would want him to come and do something just with either, with us, my, my band. He'd say, uh, well, I'd really like to bring the Bluegrass Boys, you know. And it was so important to him to have his sound, even though, I was going to be playing with him, or he was going to be playing with me. It's a, it's something that we that we love. We, you know, it's it's endearing in our hearts. This music, and one of the things that I'm I'm on this earth to do as long as I can, and and that's try to excite young people about this music, so that they can find a way, like I have found a way. I mean, I don't. I mean, I play pretty much all bluegrass now. But even but when I came to Nashville with my to get a record deal, I was putting bluegrass elements in the music. I was I was adding mandolin and banjo and fiddle along with piano, you know, and steel guitar and electric guitar. But I never apologized for the mandolin and banjo and fiddle. I put in the mix, I'd make sure that mandolin was just peeling paint, you know, or the banjo. If yeah. it come a you know, Highway 40 blues, we're gonna we're gonna bring Bela Fleck up in the mix, you know, so that, you know, when he when he stops his his solo, that steel guitar or the, the electric guitar, it's not gonna like flood drown him out or or take take center stage. I mean I, I always wanted to mix everybody the same so that everybody got a fair shake in the in the mix. You mentioned Mr. Monroe. I love the story about the first time that you met mm-hmm. Mr. Monroe. Well, I was six years old. Mr. Monroe was coming to Martha, Kentucky, to the high school. And so we went to see him. And, uh, of course, I didn't take my little old mandolin with me. Uh, I was going to watch a show, going to watch him. And, uh, you know, I had been playing with my mom and dad in church and at the grocery store and wherever we could play a little bit, you know. And, uh, you know, about 20 minutes into Mr. Monroe's show, the neighbors in the hood started shouting out for little Ricky Skaggs, little Ricky Lee Skaggs, Harbin Dorothy's little boy, <laughs> you know, let him get up and do a song. Well, embarrassed me to death. I slid down my seat and wanted to hide. That they even mentioned Bill Monroe, Ricky Skagg's name in Bill Monroe's hearing, you know, and uh, so he kept on doing doing some of his songs, and I thought, oh, great, great. So he kept playing, and they'd shout out, "Let little Ricky get up there now," you know. And finally, I'm sure that he'd heard that kind of stuff before, and he knew how to put a stop to it, and that's just to go ahead and get it over with. And so he's called for that little Ricky Skaggs, bring him on up here. And he had no idea how little Ricky Skaggs was. I was six years old, little old towhead, and he come, I walk up there, and the front of the stage was only about this tall, you know, and he just reaches down and grabs me by the arm and pulls me up, you know, and that's why one of my arms is longer than the other. But he, uh, <laughs> he pulled me up there, and he said, uh, what do you play there, boy? And I said, I play the mandolin, you know, and... And he had this big size right here, a big F5, and actually this mandolin right here. I've I've made it to look like the 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 Excalibur, is what we called it, Lancelot's sword, King Arthur's sword. And uh, so he took this big mandolin size. Uh, it's not the same one, but it's one like it. And uh, he had a boot string, which I thought, man, he's just so bad. He's got a boot string for a strap. He's like a mountain man or something. He didn't have some nice thing like this. He had a string out of a boot. So he wrapped it around there and put it on me, made it fit me. And, you know, my mother had already told me, don't you sing that pinball song if you get up there. I knew two songs. I'm an old hog caller, I drove a big 
big truck I shot the pinball machine But it caused me bad luck Lonnie I forget what Lonnie's last name was. I had the, the, the pinball machine, and it caused me bad luck. It's about this truck driver that just spent all of his time playing pinball instead of, you know. <laughs> Sounds like and, a great oh, song. Oh, man. <laughs> and, oh, you should check that out. And, uh, and I knew that one, and then I knew Ruby. Are you mad at your man? And I had no idea what she was mad about. I was a little too young to know those kind of things, <laughs> but I loved that song, and it was a big hit for the Osborne brothers, Bob and Sonny, the Osbournes, and so thank goodness they knew that song, because I knew half my repertoire had already been shot, you know, before I left to come out of my seat, so they, they knew it, and we did the song, and, you know, no, no errors, no one left on bass, you know, I mean, and so I went back to my seat, and that was it, you know, I didn't, uh, I never saw Mr. Monroe for probably eight to 10 years till I joined Ralph's band when I was 15, you know? So, um, but that night I fell in love with the man, Bill Monroe, not just his music, but I thought, you know, here's a man that is a grand old Opry star since 1939, you know, and he cared enough about his show to back out of the spotlight and let one of their little hometown kids get up and, and do a song, you know. I mean, it took five minutes out of his show, but he stepped out of the spotlight and let let me step into it. And because of that, in my I think in the deep part of my heart, I just like made a made a vow that I was going to honor him, and I was going to do the same for others when I got to be his age. Guys, do you all remember the first time you heard Ricky Skaggs? I do not remember. I was probably two. Three months old. Yeah, I don't put it this way. I don't remember a time before hearing Ricky Skaggs, if that makes sense. Um, we would always sing "Honey, Won't You Open That Door," and yeah, you know how you were saying you didn't understand the lyrics of why <laughs> she's mad at the man. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. we were raised so conservative as Mennonites that even Christian contemporary music was way too wild and crazy. Like you should never <laughs> ever have an electric guitar or drums <laughs> oh, associated okay. with God, right? So, yeah. but for some reason we were allowed to sing. If you're going to cheat on me, don't <laughs> cheat in our hometown. I have no idea how that <laughs> fell through the cracks, but so we thought it was a Monopoly reference or something like yeah. that. <laughs> You know, got caught in a poker game. Somebody must have been cheating because I lost everything but my name. All that stuff was fine for us to listen to, right? Yeah. But uh, the main song that our mom and dad always loved, you know, um, as far as a love song and something that, you know, they would have loved for us to sing in front of people was um, If I Were a Potter and You a Piece of Clay, the only thing I'd change would be your name. You oh, know, I wouldn't, wouldn't change, change if I could. I wouldn't yeah. change if I could. If I were a potter. And um, so I do not remember the first time because it was he was always there. I do remember the first time we got to uh, meet, and um, you won't remember this, but Tower Records was having, uh, you were doing a CD release um, show, I guess, at Tower Records downtown, and then mm -hmm. another one in the Opry Mills Mall. Mm -hmm. So we went to both of them, the exact same show, but we went to one and we went to the next one. And I was a huge fan at that point in time, um, there was a band called The Ranch, and we still didn't have TV, but my buddies would call me anytime The Ranch was on TV, they'd call me, and I'd listen on the phone, and they'd put it up against the TV. And the lead singer, of course, was Keith Urban, but nobody knew that yet. And Keith and his mom were there to watch Ricky Skaggs, and we were there with our mom. And I got to hang out with Keith Urban talking about how much we love Ricky Skaggs before anybody else in the mall knew who Keith Urban was. And that was, uh, I remember going up to get an autograph, and... And a couple of years later, I was uh, working at a music festival, a gospel festival up in Canada, and I was able to uh, help book Ricky and the band to come up there. And, and it started pouring rain, and it was freezing cold, a good Canadian summer day, and uh, we all sat in the rain and watched an amazing show, and it's We stayed at the same hotel, and I was in the elevator with you, and I almost peed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't talk to you because I didn't know what to say, but oh. I just couldn't believe I was standing next to you. That was... Uh, that was really cool. But I remember years later, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, my stories, I experienced all the same things as Brad, but I was six years younger, and one lady in church one time told me that my voice was really cute when I was like six years old, so I quit music. I was like, I don't want to be cute. I want to be this cool 
dude, you know? So I just didn't even care about music for like five years. And uh, so like, meanwhile, everybody's like soaking in all these vinyls and stuff at home. And I'm sneaking away, listening to as much Christian rap as I can. <laughs> and then uh, Brad started thought. DJing that, that bluegrass show and uh, started getting all these bluegrass records. And, yeah. and my sister bought a mandolin and I was 14. My dad bought me a mandolin. And then I was like, oh my goodness, this is the best music in the whole world. <laughs> yeah. And so I like rediscovered you like 15 years after my family discovered you. Wow. And that was like, that was when I got into music for real. When my wife and I first met, we were 16 years old and, and she came on a, our town's very, 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 very isolated. And she came to visit me for my 17th birthday and she took a Greyhound bus, had to stop overnight, drive the next day, have a layover for, it took her about 20 hours to get uh, 300 miles down the road in a Greyhound bus. And finally, the nearest bus stop was 80 miles away. So I drove to pick her up at the Greyhound station and I had removed all the bluegrass CDs from my car because I thought, you know, this girl's a city girl. Surely she doesn't like country and bluegrass music. So I had some like, I forget what I had, one, something that wasn't bluegrass in my car. Turns out she was very country. Jars of clay. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and she, turns out she was very country. So I, I was like, oh shoot, I took this CD out and I found an old Kentucky Headhunters CD that was accidentally under the chair. And we listened to that for the first weekend. And then we started dating, and I had one of those 10-pack CD changers in my Jeep where you could load 10 CDs at a time. And I had um, 10 bluegrass CDs in there because I was DJing at the, on that bluegrass show, and I was listening to all this stuff. And a lot of it was your artist, Keith Sewell, was yeah. on there, and Melanie Cannon, and, and of course, your stuff. And um, somebody that night broke into my Jeep and stole all my folders of every... I had about 100 CDs in there. And the only thing that was left was the 10 bluegrass CDs in the, in the CD changer that they never got. So that was God. Son. From that point forward, uh, yeah, that was God. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody's praying. Yeah. I think the angels were looking out for yeah. us. So for, that, for the rest of our relationship, I could either buy 100 more CDs or just keep listening to bluegrass. We just kind of stuck with the bluegrass from that point forward. You boys. He took us on tour, though. Um, yeah, we When sure we did. first came to Nashville... Uh, not when we first came, but when people started paying a little bit of attention, I want to say it was like 2010, roughly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went to play at Paradigm, and we we're trying to get a booking deal, and this man named Bobby Cudd came up to us after and said, you know, I love some of the bluegrass tones in your music. I work with Ricky Skaggs, and we kind of were so shocked. And so we signed a deal over there, and uh, he put us, I think it was four shows. We did Jackson, Mississippi, and Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I remember you had some really good uh, fried chicken catering backstage in those days. We, that was, we had never heard yeah. of catering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you had heard of fried chicken. Yes, yes. we had. That would have been yeah. tragic. Yeah. And it was at least two shows before you guys would even speak. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. were pretty reserved. And I'm still just focusing on not peeing my pants. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> depends. <laughs> you should have yeah. known about Depends. Absolutely. But, uh, no, once we got to know each other, though, gosh, it was just, I, I loved you guys. We, we had so much in common, you know, our faith and, and, and our love for bluegrass, our love for family and, you know, and fun. You know, Absolutely. you guys had, you guys were the whole package and all that. And then you called me into, Saying I want to make you mine, I'm going to make yeah. you mine, and uh, that was that was fun for me. That was know? a game, you know that, that that song changed our whole career. The fact that you could be a huge part of it, especially at the beginning, was such a. It'll always be very special for us because it's like, you know, the whole world can hear this song and young kids can hear it and say, "Oh, that's the High Valley song." But we know that it was the first time that we took, in our opinion real bluegrass music and melted it 50-50 with mm -hmm. what was going on yeah. at Country Radio, and you were gracious enough to sing on it, and and all of a sudden the world loved it, and we already had loved it, and it seemed like you loved it, I and it was like all, all the perfect worlds were colliding, yeah. and we just, it was so special. It still is. Showing me things and it's making me embarrassed. <laughs> don't, don't crawl but under the But good chair. seed fell on good soil. That's the thing. 
you know, and our lives need to be the same way. You know, we need to always be conscious of what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're agreeing to, what we're not agreeing to, and always know that someone is watching, you know, and and little kids are watching and what we do, you know. Yeah. You guys were watching. Keith Urban was watching, you know, and uh, I could have been such a butt, you know. <laughs> I could have been, you know, just terrible, you know, just been on a bad day or something. And, and I try my very best when, you know, not to have bad days, you know. And uh, so most of my days are always good, you know. Yeah. And uh, anytime we're six foot above, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know the ground, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a good day. And, and uh, you know, God, His mercies are new every day, hmm. you know. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for you guys that uh, y'all believe that. Y'all believe the yeah. Bible, you know. And yeah, God's just looking for someone to agree with Him. Not argue well, with him, <laughs> well, you know, because yeah. there's only one opinion that matters, and that's his. He don't yeah. care for my opinion. This podcast is brought to you by the Tennessean, part of the USA Today Network in partnership with Belmont University, where students can study music and music business in the heart of Music City. Or they can choose from more than 95 other fields of study. To learn more, visit belmont.edu. Well, Ricky, tell us about meeting Emmylou Harris, because that was kind of life-changing for you, wasn't it? It was. Uh I I had been playing with Ralph Stanley for two and a half years. Uh, I'm, I, I met Ralph again. I, I I played with him and Carter, you know, in Eastern Kentucky. They were playing uh, some shows uh, in Olive Hill, Kentucky, and then up in um, Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And uh, I played with them in Olive Hill. And they asked me to come on up to to Prestonsburg, and we were just so excited. We'll put him on up there. Bring him up. And uh, so. You know, I was about eight years old, nine. We'd moved back to Kentucky by then from Goodlettsville. I was playing with Ralph those two and a half years or so. Then I left Ralph and moved up to uh, Northern Virginia and got a got a job. Uh, got married when I was 18. My ex-wife, her family was living up there and um, moved up there and uh, got a job as a high-pressure or auxiliary, wait a minute, an assistant High pressure boiler operator. That's what that's that was my title in nice. training. Believe me. And uh, anyway, worst job ever. And uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a really great story. Like yeah, assistant oh, high God. pressure boiler operator in training. Yeah, for for Vepco, Virginia Electric and Power Company. Yeah. And uh, one night on midnight shift, uh, I was supposed to clean this boiler out. His huge boiler, and you so you drain all the water out. Then you put water and have these jets that you open up and it kind of cleans all the sludge it falls down from the pipes way up and so they're supposed to all go out and and uh so anyway it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to it sounds fill it back like a good up, job you know so i was upstairs while it was filling up you know i was upstairs and i brought my banjo i was learning to or you know practicing up on my claw hammer drop thumb style banjo i loved playing that so I had it up there, and and um, and so I was playing, you know, in the break room up there, and nobody was there, just playing to these machines, you know. That was my little rhythm band, and uh, so after, I mean, I got lost in time. I just, I, I didn't have an iPhone to set a timer, and um, anyway, just got lost in time, and all of a sudden, I heard this. These hazards, yeah. horns, sirens were going off. And I went, oh, my God, threw my banjo in the case, put it in the locker like I was never there and ran downstairs. When I got down there, the main guy, the boss, was standing there in water up to almost his knee. You know, these 50-gallon drums were just like floating. <laughs> and I just stood there at the stairs and I looked at what I'd done. I just realized right then, you know, God did not call me to be a, an assistant high-pressure boiler operator. And so <laughs> I went training. down and talked to the to the superintendent. I told him I was so sorry, you know. And he said, Mr. Skaggs, I don't believe God called you to be a high-pressure boiler operator. <laughs> I thought 
out of the mouth of two witnesses. You know? <laughs> so, man, I just, I, they didn't fire me, but I turned a notice in. I just said, I can't do this. You know, this is wow. not. So it wasn't, wasn't long after that that I got a phone call from a country gentleman. So I started playing with them. And I knew John Starling from the group, uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember, Seldom Seen was the name of the band, and Mike Aldridge was in that band. And, um, but anyway, I would go over to John, John Starling's house. Uh, he'd call me up and say, hey, you want to have a picking tonight? We're going, you know, we've got some friends coming over. Well, they said, hey, Linda Ronstadt's in town, and she, you know, she's going to be staying with us. And, uh, and uh, so come on over and, you know, play some tonight if you're, if you're off. So... I took my mandolin fiddle over there and and uh, met her and and we were just sitting around singing songs and well this long-legged skinny beautiful woman with long hair came walking in and everybody was saying hey Emmy hey Emmy and I'd never met her before never heard of her before and she pulled out a Gibson guitar and just squatted down in the floor on her knees in her Emmy position and just started singing. And it was like this songbird had just flown into the room. And just instant bond, you know, in our hearts for each other's abilities to sing and play and the love we had for the music. And so that that was our life. I mean, every time we got together, we were learning new songs. And, and um, so she gets, she gets a, you know, Mary Martin gets her a deal with, with Warner Brothers, you know, and uh, she does her first record elite hotel she wanted me to go to work with her play fiddle and i knew there was just so much more that i wanted to be doing i wanted to be able to sing more so when emmy asked me to come work in a band you know i don't want to get back in another job where i'm not getting to sing singing to me is just like having another instrument that's staying in the case you know They would use me on a real high gospel song like Lord Protect My Soul because I could sing to the stratosphere then. And, and uh, so, you know, we'd do that. And so when Rodney decided to leave, Amy Lou called and said, hey, Rodney's leaving. Would you like this job? Uh, that's what happened. That's, uh, you know, that when I went with Emmy, uh, I had left Boone Creek. For, you know, we, we had that band together for two years. And so I worked with Emmy about two years. And then uh, when she decided to start a family, uh, have Megan, her daughter, her and Brian, uh, then I thought, man, this is the time for me to, you know, try to get, get a music you know, deal, a record deal. I ain't getting no younger. And uh, I was in my early 20s, moved here and got a deal. How long did Made it take? Huh? How long from when you started being a solo artist till you got a record deal? Like the stuff that I heard, did you have that for a long time before it came out on the records that we heard? It was about five minutes. No, <laughs> honest to goodness, I had. I know. I know we don't have time to tell this whole story, but um, I was. I, I was telling that brother Ben over there that uh, um, I had. I had some music that I had recorded in L.A. Uh, at Emmy's studio, Brian Hearn's studio, and you can see that truck over at the Musicians Hall of Fame. It's over there now. Mm-hmm. Brian donated the truck, and it's got all of our names on it on a board back there in the comfort zone and that was the studio we worked in all the time and of course the we had a house that we you know run all the mic cables and everything into but anyway i had some music and uh ended up meeting a guy on an airplane he he, he got to listen to my music on a on a flight and um we ended up sitting together and um he heard the music and just really loved what he heard you know and wanted to know if I produced it, and I said yes, and that was, um, he said, you know, asked me if I'd come down to, to Capitol, you know, the next day, yeah. you know, uh, here in town, just across the street. So we played it for them, they were up dancing on Honey, and they loved it, and I mean, it was, it was, you know, I thought, man, I've got, I'm, they'd be getting a record deal, and uh, so I went back the next day, because they wanted to make a copy of it, and overnight it to L.A., and let, let Don Grierson hear it, because they all three had to sign off on it. And, of course, he, he was the one that really, you know, put the dagger in the heart of it. You know, he said, you know, traditional country music ain't selling. You know, we're away from that now because it was all the urban cowboy yeah. stuff at that time, you know. Uh, and, uh, and he said that bluegrass stuff, you know, what's that, you know. And uh, I said, I'll tell you one day. No, I didn't tell him. <laughs> anyway, 
I didn't get my Kentucky on him. So, yeah. but you know, I I knew uh, that you know if, if they didn't like it, if he didn't like it, that they were going to pass on it. So, uh, so I went back to pick my CD or my my cassette up, and uh, Lynn Schultz said, "Man, I would sign you in a minute if I could." You know, he said, "I love your stuff." He said, "But I'm going to make a phone call if you've got a minute." So he called Rick Blackburn, which was the you know the head of CBS, you know the Columbia Epic, you know label and. I came down here and played the stuff for him. And after two songs, he said, who produced that? And I said, I did. And I said, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I was so, I was just so, I was way too assured maybe. I don't know. But I just thought, you know, he said, um, who produced it? I said, well, I did. And I said, if you like what you hear, I tell you, I said, I really want to, I want to produce my my music. And he said, well, he said that that's going to be hard because he's Larry Gatlin's the only person on this label that gets to produce his own music. And I thought, well, we can have two, but I didn't say that. <laughs> but anyway, he said, well, I'll check with New York and make, you know. But he said, I love what I'm hearing. And so anyway, we went uh, went to there was a place here in town called um, Ireland's Steak and Biscuit. That was the scene of uh, my rec- first record deal getting written out on a on a table napkin. Uh, by Rick Blackburn and giving it to me, and I took it to Mike Milan, my attorney, who's still my attorney after all these years, um, and uh, we had a record deal. So wow. that was uh, that was how quick it happened. And but I couldn't release that music that they had heard because it belonged to Sugar Hill. I had a two deal, a two album deal with Sugar right. Hill, and so uh, I had to go in and cut brand new stuff. You know, which that was waiting for the sunshine was my first record. Oh wow! And uh, so I had two number ones from that, and four from the next record. And when, when Rick started really seeing that records were selling, and so he, he started trying to go after that, honey, open that door, and don't cheat in our hometown, yeah. and Uncle Penn, and yeah. all that stuff, you know, uh, from don't cheat in our hometown record. And, um, and, of course, I had a cut that Dolly had done, you know, on it, A Vision of Mother, and that, that, was a, that was a hard thing to get. But Dolly, man, she stepped up to the plate and said, he is going to release my vocal on there because uh, RCA was just like, no, he's not. And she said, yes, my, he is. I told him he could use me, and he's going to use me. So she wow. stepped up, boy, and just, I mean, went to bat and said no. So, you know, because I had I'd gone in and had to redo it, redo the harmonies, so I had to sing all of myself, you know, like I was, I died for like a, <laughs> two weeks trying to sing all of it, but no, her voice, her voice on the uh, on the vision of mother was just like you can't touch this. This has got to be out, yeah. you know. Anyway, that was the story of uh, that took way too long. I'm sure. I'm, oh, that's right. The, <laughs> do I have time to tell how yes. Mr. Skaggs influenced us getting our record deal? The first one we ever had um, was we signed in 2007. And um, we by this time, you had done that solid ground, kind of the yeah. country meets gospel mm-hmm. kind of record. Yeah. And there was a man named John Mays who had A&R the record, and I would always read the back. I think it was Columbia House that I bought that record through. Yeah. And um, so I read the name John Mays, and we live in a little town called LaCrete, uh, Alberta, Canada, and that's where we were born and raised. And it's about... 700 miles north of Calgary, Alberta. So it's way up there. And I find out that the Gospel Music Association of Canada is flying John Mays into Calgary, Alberta. And I think this is the same John Mays that's on the back of the Ricky Skaggs Mm -hmm. record, and it's only 700 miles. (laughs) So I called them, and um, I said, hey, um, I see it's 200 bucks to join your association or be at this event, and um, all I really want is I want to have dinner with John Mays. And I have no idea why they said this, but I swear this is the truth. They said, uh, he doesn't have any time to have dinner, but he does need a ride to the airport after his speech. <laughs> so I drove 700 miles in my I'll Jeep. I'll bring sandwiches. Grand Cherokee. <laughs> I drove him for about 10 or 15 minutes to the airport, and I gave him our CD and told him, you know, I love what you did with Ricky Skaggs and the Paul Overstreet record and the Mid-South Boys. Yeah. And um, he was shocked because he thought I was going to say, I love what you did with, you know, the Newsboys or whatever kind of Christian rock thing he was working at the time. And anyway, he, he never liked our record, but thankfully other people in the building uh, 
were interested and ended up flying us down and recorded better songs and the rest is history but yeah you owe me for 1400 miles worth of gas Man, just for no having kidding. his name on the back there right? <laughs> dang with interest that's 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 a lot it's a, it's a bit of a drive but i had a I lot of adrenaline you, you told me after because you played the record for him and i was like what did he think and you said he said it's not very good and the snare is way too quiet. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty much it. I was like, wow, you drove all that way just for that? And that, was, that was in the day of MySpace. So thankfully, his marketing guy, a man named Steve Ford, who you know runs the company now, and Lauren Daigle's their artist, and she's you know one of the biggest artists in the world right now. But um, he went on our MySpace and saw that we had so many shows, and, and so they flew us out and... Um, to a little town in Washington State, they had this retreat, and I'll never forget. We we were already playing some some shows, so we um, couldn't play where they normally wanted us to play, where all the other artists were showcasing. But they got us in a pizza place in Twisp, Washington, and I always tell people we're huge in Twisp, Washington, because there's about forty people at a pizza place that night. We played "I'll Fly Away" and a few bluegrassy things, and and we ended up getting our first record deal that way. So, full circle. I know you wanted to talk about the Ken Burns documentary. Yes. Have you all seen the Ken Burns documentary? Yet. My goodness. Well, it's, you're, it's going to be a treat. They worked eight years on the absolute quintessential country music documentary of all time. I mean, obviously, Ken Burns leaves not, not too many stones unturned, you know, when he's doing a documentary. I really believe that this documentary is going to do more to influence your generation and younger ones, the generation before you too, uh, than than anything I think in maybe maybe our lifetime. You know, um, just because it honors the fathers and mothers, you know, that that really gave so much of their life to uh, to you know for for the art, you know, of music and and. For the gift of music, it's more than art. You know, it's it's a it's a true gift. You know, and I can't stress enough how emotionally it touched me because so many of these people I got a chance to have relationships with, you know, a friendship, and got to know these people. You know, um, obviously not not Hank Williams, but um, but uh, and Buddy Holly and people like that. But um, so many that did have relations with them and, and uh, understanding them. And, and uh, it was just um, such a full educational tool that I think that, that uh, people are going to walk away from there going, my God, that's, that's the greatest music. Because when you hear not only the music, but you hear, you know, artists talking about how important that music is to the foundation stones that was laid, you know, that we have the opportunities now and have the, the luxuries of flying to a date or getting on a bus and riding to a date, you know, and not having to, I mean, sometimes you have to worry about having a flat tire on a bus or something mm-hmm. stopped working or, you know, but, but for the most part, you know, those guys, they just work their guts out, you know, yeah. to, to, you know, Carter and Ralph Stanley, the, the, the hard times had fallen upon them so bad, you know, they'd leave Live Oak, Florida, where they were living at the time, and drive all the way to uh, West Grove, Pennsylvania, uh, to, you know, New River Ranch in Maryland or somewhere like that, you know, just to play one show, you know, and have enough money to have, you know, that they could eat, you yeah. know. Uh, they just had enough money where they could pay gas to get up there, you know, and just hope and pray they didn't have a blowout, you know. And George Shuffler, the guy that traveled with them all the time, told me those those stories, you know. And and uh, so you know, rock and roll had really taken a big uh, a big hit into the country music world. It wasn't rock and roll's fault. They were taken. I mean, Bob Dylan loved the Stanley Brothers, loved the Monroe Brothers, and loved country music and loved those guys. And of course, it tells a lot about him coming here, you know, and and uh, you know working. Uh, over at RCA, you know, yeah. at the studio there, and and uh, making those records, and and how so many, you know, how Johnny Cash really had such a uh, influence with his uh, with his television show, you know, and brought all these young kids, 
you know, Eric Clapton, you know, and, and Linda Ronstadt, you know, and, and uh, Bob Dylan, you know, and, and people like that into to his fold, you know, because they all loved him because he'd had a really tortured past and he was getting it together and, and uh, he was a hero to them in so many ways where, you know, church people couldn't reach those guys, but Johnny Cash could, yeah. you know. And I just think that's uh, that's an amazing thing that God does. Not only does He forgive, but He restores, you know, and uh, allows us to uh, to take a mess and make a message out of it, you know, with our lives. And uh, that's that's the giveaway there, the the story I feel. And uh, but but it's it's a it's a great uh, great documentary. I think it'll go down as the best. Best one he's ever done, you know, to date, for sure. Um, there's so much talk about it. I uh, came here. Of course, Belmont is a big part of that, you know, and, and uh, we're so thankful for Belmont and, and their generous uh, gift to, uh, to, to to bless this music and help them and raise up young kids here in Nashville. Uh, get them up on the on the right foot and realize that um, it, ain't, it, ain't about, uh, it ain't about how big we get, you know, uh, I was telling Cindy the other day, I, I, I got this, you know, I get these, you know, requests comes in at the Opry House. I've got a mailbox over at the Opry House. And, That's amazing. Oh, and it gets full. And, you know, there's only a little old, small thing, you know, like the old days in, in old mail, country mailboxes, you know, mail, or uh, post offices. And um, so they empty it out, take this home, you know, and here's your mail and so anyway, Sharon goes through a lot of it, you know, because I just let it lay there and get dusty. And so she's ready to get it off the counter, you know. It's like, would you sign these things? And this, this one man, he wants you, to, wants you to sign something for his son, Luke, that's just starting to play mandolin. And, and he, just give him some encouragement, you know. He, Luke wanted to know about success. So if you could just say something about success, you know. One page? So anyway, <laughs> I just said, hey, Luke, you know, I know you're um, – you know, you're learning to play and all that. And I said, I bet you've got a lot of talent and I bet you love the instrument. And I don't know what all I said to him. I don't know any of this stuff in the natural. But but I just tried to encourage him, you know, in case he does like it someday. But but uh, anyway, I just said, I'm going to tell you the best advice I ever had about success. As I said, my mama set me down once and she, uh, she must have seen that I was getting a little... Uh, braggy about my plan as a little kid because I never got to be around you know young young people you know that much my my cousins and their friends would come to my house and and visit and they'd be outside playing and I'd be inside playing music with my dad and mom you know yeah. so I never got out much you know and and uh, but anyway she told me one time she said you know Rick you've got a great talent just always remember you're not any better than anybody else, but you're as good as anybody. And don't let your talent go to your head, you know. And I said, yes, mama. <laughs> you know, it really touched my heart the way yeah. she said it because it was in love, but it was with uh, that same finger. Don't you sing that pinball song when you get up there? <laughs> she had that same finger going. But uh, that was that free will Baptist mama I had, and um, prayerful woman. So that was the uh, that was the success story. So I think it's um, it's so important that we uh, that we shepherd the gift that's given us. You know, take care of it, honor it, bless it, let it grow, get better, get you know, work it hard. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the relationships we make. And our gifts are never for us. They're always for others. You know, God gives us a gift, but it's to bless others with, you know. And, and thankfully, you know, I get to make a living doing it, you know. But that's the door opener. And you guys know that, yeah. you know. It's a, the music is the door opener. The people getting out where the people are. Because I used to hide myself away. I, you know, after a show, two hours, I'm, oh, I'm going to my bus. I just, uh, I'm just so tired. You know, mm. man, I'm such a wimp and such a whiner, you know. And God broke my heart back in 2015, I think it was, 2015. And he's broke my heart, you know. And I just, I felt like, you know, here you are, you know, you've got the greatest opportunity ever, you know, to go out and love on people. Let them come up to you. They're not going to hurt you. You know, you're not some 
you know, you're, you're not Garth Brooks, you know, you're not Elvis, you know, and you can let these people come up to you, you know, and I thought, that's right, you know, and uh, so, uh, so I started going out to the record table and just letting people come up and just shake my hand, tell me how much their music is meant to them, like yeah. you boys have gracefully done. But and just let them do that, and and just be grateful and thankful. Shake their hand, have a picture made, and let the next one come. Yeah. And sometimes it takes three hours, but it's the best part of the day. It truly yeah. is. I mean, I love playing with my rascal bunch of young boys. They're just amazing, you know. But at the end of the day, it's what we've done, you know, for to, to just let someone know that we're, we're appreciative and that we, we love them, you know, and that they feel loved by God. I love that you still do that because, I mean, this sounds pathetic now after you saying that, but at our very low level on the totem pole compared to you already, there's talk with the record company or management, you know, maybe y'all shouldn't sign after the perception is if you're the headliner, you shouldn't be out there, you know. There's a lot of talk about perception, right? For and I, I hate it, but perception is a huge thing that people talk about mm-hmm. in the music business. And we still go out. We just played one of our biggest shows last last week, and we went out for a long time after and met everybody. And the reason, the same reason you're talking about, but it's like we know how much it meant to us as kids, and we can meet you or anybody that we looked up to and get a picture or shake their hand, and yeah. and for us to fly all the way to you know, somewhere in North Dakota or Florida or California or wherever it is and not take that extra hour to, to meet them yeah. seems like a, a waste. Yeah. And, and it is so, for us, our music, you know, we're trying so hard to bring families back together like you talk about growing up playing music with your parents or we were playing with our sisters and our mom and dad and now it seems like everybody drops their kids off at a show for kids or they drop the kids off at a sitter and they go to a show as a couple, mm-hmm. but families don't go together. So when we can be at our show and, and through the autograph line comes a mom and a dad and a couple of kids, and we, we always yeah. make a joke that we're taking the Christmas card for their fridge for the yeah, next year. Yeah, we did too. <laughs> but but that's, that's what blesses us the most because yeah. that's literally the reason why we do the and music in the first be, place. You know, and, and those same people that say per- perception, you know, you don't want to – those are the same ones. Well, you don't want to offend – I don't understand that. You know, if someone gets paid to to keep, you know, the prospection manager, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I tell you, if they came out, those the same people, if they came out and saw that you guys are loving on the people, thanking them for coming, he's never bought a ticket to your show ever. And he's probably yeah. never laid down any money to buy one of your records. He probably gets them free, you know. <laughs> so those people pay they buy a T-shirt. They get a they get a picture, yeah. and for you to thank them means the world. They'll be back, you know. Yeah. But Mr. Perception, he gets his paycheck every week to say, guard the perception. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. I know I'm not sorry. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you for coming here to hang out with me today, Cindy. Super thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Country Mile. This podcast series is produced by the USA Today Network's Erica Whitney and John Garcia. And I'm your host, Cindy Watts. Theme music from KillerTracks.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. For more in-depth coverage of country music, visit Tennessean.com backslash Country Mile.